Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this February PTJ podcast, and I want to welcome our guest, Dr. Beth McManus, who is on faculty at the Colorado School of Public Health at the University of Colorado, Denver, as well as affiliated with the Adult and Child Center for Outcomes Research and Delivery Science in Aurora, Colorado. Welcome, Dr. McManus. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The focus of this podcast is going to be an article that Dr. McManus and her colleagues published in our most recent Health Services Research special series, and it's entitled, Which Children Are Not Getting Their Needs for Therapy or Mobility Aids Met? Data from the 2009 to 2010 National Survey of Children with Special Health Care Needs. Dr. McManus, let me start by saying I really enjoyed the article. This is not an area that I know a great deal about, and so I really appreciated learning more about the needs and the unmet needs of these children. Let me start by asking you to describe a little bit what you would see as the background and the context for why you did the study. So our underlying assumption going into this study is that children with developmental conditions, whether it be a developmental delay or a developmental disability, can benefit from therapy services, so physical, occupational, and speech therapy services. So when they're not receiving this care that can improve their functional status, it's, of course, concerning, especially from a clinical perspective. So as a pediatric physical therapist, I'm concerned that there's a population of children that we might be missing when we're providing services. And then if we think about this also from sort of the public health, health services research or health policy perspective, it's also concerning because there are, of course, cost implications. So, for example, if we believe, which we do, that it's better to intervene early or earlier than pay for more costly services later on, then it's really important to know who's not receiving the needed services. And it's also important to consider why families and children experience access difficulties so that we can hopefully design interventions to help reduce those barriers and help these children and families, especially those living in more vulnerable situations. Now, you were very fortunate. You were able to do a secondary analysis of the National Survey of Children with Special Health Care Needs. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about the survey for those who are not familiar with it? So the National Survey of Children with Special Health Care Needs is a nationally representative survey, nationally representative sample of children with special health care needs. It's conducted by the National Center for Health Statistics, and the methods for the survey are that it's a random digit dial survey of almost 200,000 U.S. households to identify a little over 40,000 children with a special health care need. So what happens with the survey is that households are contacted and the primary caregiver is asked a number of screening questions to then be able to identify children with special health care needs who, so once a child within the household is identified as having a special health care need, then the caregiver can choose to participate in the full survey. 
so just to tell you a little bit more about that screener and how children with special health care needs are identified, is that the caregiver, the primary caregiver, the respondent, most often it's the parent and most often it's the mother, but not always, is asked a series of questions. So, for example, does your child require more medications, health services, or therapy needs than would be expected of a child of a similar age? Or does your child have a functional limitation or a behavioral or developmental condition? And any of the questions, the sort of context around any of those questions, the yes has to relate to a condition that's expected to last at least 12 months. And so then once a child is identified, then, like I said, the caregiver can choose to participate in the full survey. Now, based on that definition, you estimated the prevalence of children with special health care needs was about 15% in those households? Yes. Was this figure a surprise to you, and how does it uh, relate to previous surveys? So because our group has worked with previous versions of the survey, which it was conducted in 2001, 2005, 6, and then most recently in 2009 and 10, it wasn't a surprise to us. So, in fact, the prevalence in 2001 of children with special health care needs was just shy of 13%. It was almost 14% in 2005 and 6, and then 15%, as you mentioned, in 2009 and 10. So, it seems like there might be somewhat of an upward trend. However, the National Center for Health Statistics does caution against comparing across years for some of the questions and possibly for this prevalence, this point estimate only because of the way the samples were created across the years did vary a bit with regard to inclusion of landlines versus cell phones and so forth. It's possible that there's been a bit of an upward trend in the prevalence, but we have to sort of interpret these data with caution. You mentioned cell phones, and I just wanted to ask you about that. Increasingly, people are using cell phones instead of landlines. When you do a random digit dial approach to sampling, does that include cell phones in the sample frame? It did, yeah. It did include cell phones. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense then. Now, in your paper, in order to assess both need for therapy and need for mobility aids, as well as unmet need, you use the caregiver as the primary source of that information. Could you talk a little bit about why you use that approach and what you see as maybe the pros and the cons of using it that way? So for this survey, all of the responses are caregiver reports. So in sort of choosing this survey, we knew going into it that our outcome variable would be parent report or primary caregiver report of unmet need. And there are certainly a number of other studies, ours included, our research group included in that, that have used other methods in that they've used either a diagnosis related to eligibility for therapy services or eligibility, for example, for early intervention, or presumed need, with the idea being that if a child has a diagnosis that is commonly associated with receipt of therapy and they're not receiving therapy, that we could presume that that's unmet need. However, the problem with that is there's, of course, a lot of variability within diagnoses, and it's very possible that children with certain diagnoses actually don't need physical or occupational or speech therapy. So there's sort of critique on both sides of it. So the sort of pro of using parent report is that we get away from this presumed need, right, because we don't really know in terms of the diagnosis whether or not the child would, in fact, need 
physical or occupational or speech therapy services. So we're getting away from that presumed need and its caregiver-reported need. So then the flip side of that, the trade-off, is that we are depending on perceived need. And so it requires that the parent recognizes that there is, you know, a problem or a need for therapy services and then goes and seeks services. And recently, our colleague Don Magnuson published a paper looking at this idea of perceived need and how it might vary across child and family characteristics. And it does seem to vary quite a bit across sociodemographic, racial and ethnic and sociodemographic characteristics. So I think we don't have a perfect way of measuring this from either just a caregiver report or just sort of objective kind of claims data that includes only ICD-9 codes. So ideally, we would have a mix of the two where we could correlate some of the outcomes and kind of cross-check where we had parent-reported need as well as some functional measures and some diagnostic measures would be kind of the ideal or more optimal way of measuring it. But in essence, there's really no gold standard for how you're going to measure unmet need. There is not. Let's get to the results and talk a little bit about the results. You found that when you're looking at the percentage of these children who had unmet needs for therapy, that was about 17.7%, and then the percentage of those with unmet mobility aid needs was 7.7%. Did these mm-hmm. figures surprise you, and how do they relate to previous estimates? So, no, they didn't surprise us. This point estimate of about 20, just shy of 20% or so, is sort of in the range of what we've seen in previous studies. You know, in previous research, we've seen the range of unmet need be anywhere from 10% up to 50%. And it really depends on the specific question. So, for example, are you asking specifically about therapy services? Are you asking more generally about general therapy services and not specifically physical or occupational therapy, for example? Are you talking about broad umbrella programs like early intervention? So, for example, the 10% is children with a developmental delay who are not receiving early intervention where the 50%, it describes children who have a developmental disability who are not receiving early intervention services. We've actually seen the 20% mark when we've looked at unmet need for therapy services among very low birth weight babies who aren't receiving therapy, with a developmental delay, who aren't receiving therapy services. So I think we weren't surprised by it. I think it falls within the range of previous studies and previous versions of the survey. So for both therapy services, and unmet need for mobility aids. When you looked at risk factors for unmet needs, the ones that seemed to really jump out were the children who had developmental disabilities and those who had a condition that was known to affect function, as well as those with insurance uh, discontinuity. They were more likely to have unmet needs. Mm-hmm. Were there other predictors that you expected to emerge that did not? We did expect that some of the sociodemographic characteristics might affect unmet need for services. For example, maternal education we thought might have a stronger association with unmet need from the sense that moms with lower education might not know about services or they might not have a social support network that is, you know, transferring a lot of information about access to therapy services or it might be a resource issue related to accessing therapy services. So we might expect to see significantly higher odds of unmet need 
and the opposite being true for higher education. But we didn't see that. What we did find was that there was an income association, and then, as you mentioned, more of the child characteristics, which is pretty consistent with what other people have found, that the two primary drivers of unmet need for therapy services appear to be the extent to which the child's condition affects his or her function and insurance status. Am I correct in interpreting that the families with the highest income was associated with more unmet need for therapy? Right. Our reference group was the highest income bracket, so it was actually the third income bracket. So the two lower income brackets were not associated with unmet need, whereas the third income bracket was associated, compared to the highest income bracket, was associated with greater unmet need. And our hypothesis for that is that in the lowest income bracket, most of those children will be covered by public insurance. So, for example, state Medicaid programs and other like programs. And many of those programs have relatively generous insurance coverage packages for therapy services. And then, of course, the highest income bracket tends to, in general, have fairly good private insurance, as well as these families also tend to have out-of-pocket resources to pay for services that might not be covered by insurance. And then we have this middle group. And what we found in previous studies, we did a similar study on a cohort of babies born very low birth weight in Wisconsin. And we found the same finding that for unmet need for therapy services, this sort of middle group had the highest unmet need. And the hypothesis for that group and as well as for this study was that it could relate to inadequate insurance coverage because the lower income children have Medicaid or public insurance. The higher income have fairly good private insurance. In this middle group, they don't qualify for Medicaid. Their parents may not be at a job that provides very comprehensive private insurance. So they end up often with sort of inadequate insurance or being underinsured. And sort of this near poor group tends to fare rather poorly in terms of access to services. That makes perfect sense, actually. And it's quite consistent with the reasons for unmet need that the respondents noted that you put in one of your tables. Totally consistent problems with the health plan, costs, services not being available, et cetera. That would uh, correspond very nicely with your interpretation of the income finding. I think so, yeah, yeah. So in summary, if you step back from a moment from your results, how do you think what you've learned in your study could help clinicians who are working with children and families with respect to both their needs and their unmet needs? So I think, you know, as a pediatric physical therapist, I think that knowing that there are certain characteristics of children who are more likely to have unmet need for therapy, being that they might have inconsistent insurance, they might be from a family that is not necessarily low income, not necessarily high income, and that another big driver is children's functional status. So children with greater functional impairments, we are very consistently seeing that they have unmet need for therapy. So if we know these risk factors and we know that, you know, they are prevalent in our population of children that we're working with, we can, as clinicians, help families navigate the healthcare system and seek out resources and supports for families to help them 
reduce these access barriers. So some of them, as you mentioned, were things like transportation and finding appointment times that were convenient, coordinating with school therapy services. So I think there are things that we can do to help with that care coordination piece that will ultimately help families navigate the healthcare system better, you know, with the end goal, hopefully, of reducing barriers and improving access to therapy services for these children. Well, Dr. McManus, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me about your article. I really enjoyed reading it. I learned a lot, and I'm sure listeners will enjoy hearing about it as well. And before ending, I would just like to invite our listeners to read some of the many other articles in the Health Services Research Special Series. There are a lot of excellent pieces of work in the series, and I would invite you to take a look. Thank you very much, and continued success with your future research. Thank you very much.